Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. Today we're discussing foreign subsidy regulation and its relationship to public procurement, as well as events after the pandemic. Welcome to Bestec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andov discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello, sir. Good day, mate. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, it's going pretty good. Pretty good. Are you still down under? I'm still down under. I will be down under for some time, as you know. Uh, as you know. So you're, whereabouts are you located at the moment? Perth, Australia. Perth, Australia. Ah, fantastic. And you're there on a research day, right? I am. That is true. Looking into some interesting stuff. But that means that also you're just starting your day. I'm finishing. So it's a bit bizarre time difference, but we're going to make it work. For sure. Um, It also means that it's snowing outside here and that it's about 35 degrees down there. Um, (laughs) That is true. Let's not talk about that. That does hurt me a little bit. But uh, what are we going to talk about today? Um, Today, um, for our main course, uh, we're discussing foreign subsidy regulation. Uh, So I would like to uh, get straight into it. Um, So can you lay the ground for us, Willem? What is foreign subsidy regulation and what are its objectives? Yeah, so the, the foreign subsidy regulation was adopted last December. Um, I think it will have quite a substantial impact on big procurement projects in Europe. And it was mostly adopted to fill a regulatory gap <clears throat> because we have state aid rules in uh, in Europe that try to uh, prevent state aid that distorts uh, competition so uh, we can't uh, unlimitedly uh, grant aid to our national champions uh, we're trying to create an internal market so that's why we have state aid law in a nutshell however what that doesn't take into account is state aid given by third countries so say if uh, Brazil or China or the US would want to uh, subsidize uh, entities on the uh, internal market. The risk there is that these entities can still compete under different conditions because they get this uh, this the, these these subsidies. So what this regulation tries to do is it tries to tackle that, and it does that from two perspectives. Uh, one, it contains uh, lots of rules on concentrations. But the second major leg of it is that it also focuses on uh, on public procurement. And um, uh, so that's where public procurement, I think, will also start to play a role in the future. And maybe to, just, to, just to highlight uh, the, the role of public procurement here is that um, the FSR kicks into effect if it concerns foreign subsidies that cause or risk causing a distortion in a public procurement procedure. And those foreign subsidies must then enable an economic operator to submit a tender that is unduly advantageous. So that core concept of unduly advantageous is then caused by that foreign subsidy in a public procurement procedure. And the underlying aspect of that is is that we don't want those bidders to participate. So they basically get punished through a public procurement procedure in a number or could get punished through a public procurement procedure. 
So we would use here the public procurement language would be that they gaining a competitive advantage um, over others due to those subsidies. Is that fair to say? Exactly. Yeah. Can I ask you, because we recorded some time ago um episode on international procurement instrument, and there is a certain relationship between those two. So um what I wanted to ask you for clarification, because you meant uh, you mentioned foreign subsidies, but is it foreign subsidies, so to speak, to European companies, or is it um, you know foreign companies' access to public procurement markets, or is it both? And how you- then maybe also you know what is the relationship um, between international procurement instrument and and FSR? So it's really companies that are active on the internal market that receive foreign subsidies. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a way, I think they both are different because mm-hmm. uh, like we discussed uh, based on an article that you'd written on the IPI um, in, in a previous episode, that's really outward looking. It's really Very much. trying to establish access in third countries which have limited access for European Uh, companies to to make their bids there. Whereas this one is really about securing a level playing field uh, and to avoid distortion of competition on the internal market. So mm. it's more inward looking and the influence is coming from outside, if I'm if I can generalize. Yeah, What's interesting think, though, yeah. Sorry, um, because we just maybe also as a clarification to our listeners, as we're recording Utrecht, Perth, and it's so far away, internet is poor, we don't see each other for the first time. So we might a little bit more jump into each other's words, or at least use that as an excuse today. Um, what I just That's, wanted to... That will to, be always my fault, right? If we can no, establish no, that. No, no, don't worry. <laughs> um, what I just wanted to add is that why I absolutely agree with you about this inward and outward perspective, I think though that there will be a certain moment or, of overlap I wonder whether you agree to that, that, um, you know, in context of API, even if it's outward looking and you kind of use it as a leverage to say, we want to get access for European companies in that market. If you're not going to give it to us, we then going, you know, colloquially speaking or kick you out out of our market or, you know, um, not allow you entry point, et cetera, et cetera. But if you kind of look at it, it is because up there, it's also something about ensuring level playing field. So if we're opening our market to a broader competition and also the competition that may not be, you know, sort of meeting the same threshold of requirements and and, and um, rules that there are, um, I think that in that sense, there will be as a consequence. So as a consequence of IPI, you may have also be excluded from a procurement. Similarly, as in context of FSR, you will be excluded. This is also a good question. Excluded from procurement or not even, is there a difference being excluded or not even being allowed to participate? Well, they refer to rejection under the, but the consequence is the same. But I think we're on the same Mm. page though. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's a different level playing field. The FSR is really a level playing field like we know it traditionally on the internal market. Whereas Mm. like you rightly say, the IPI is more of a global level playing field. Whereas, you know, if we grant access in Europe, then you should too in the US or in Brazil or China. Mm. So that's where, uh, but I I also think there's, there's one thing that overlaps um, is that the consequences of both are present on the internal market, clearly, right? On both instances, 
there's a consequence for a bidder with either a foreign nationality, and, and I mean by that like a registration, say yeah, from somewhere else, so, yeah. or a an entity that uh, you know receives funding from there. So I, I think in a way they they and in general I think they are very much part of a trend in which the commission is is gaining more power to enact on industrial policy and foreign trade and and public procurement is also part of that uh in as as one of the many tools that the commission is getting at the moment to really try to establish itself as as also the enforcer of that level playing field that you refer to I think it's also a um, consequence of, you know, uh, specific contemporary issues and time where we are right now, post-economic uh, crisis several years ago, but post-pandemic also. In Europe, obviously, extremely relevant consequences also to internal market of the invasion of Ukraine. Yep. Um, all of it, I think, ultimately, really, at least that's my impression, that even regulatory-wise, if you look and a lot of proposals connected with procurement, but also outside in the EU, we are a little bit in that phase of how you would describe it. It's sort of like, you know, reinforcing of protectionism, but not on the national level as such, but protectionism within internal market, almost saying, well, we need to build something. We need to build, you know, like a, our European champions we cannot have everyone coming in and then just not applying the same rules when our companies go out and so on and so forth. This is because also there has been recently this whole sort of movement about uh, on political level promotion uh, of, you know, resilience in Europe and this notion of being more self-sufficient in Europe in context of supply chains and things like that. So I think that is part of this general trend. I I'm, I'm not sure whether in, in Netherlands you kind of notice a similar sort of discussion point um, when it comes to EU law right now or EU policies yeah. rather. I think it's very similar. I think also what's interesting about this, on the one hand, we're talking about an FSR today, but just to mm. maybe hamper also expectations to a certain extent um, in response to a lot of aid that, that the Biden administration is giving in the US, we're now seeing that some member states are also calling for like, you know, more flexibility to, you know, give aid to our national European uh, champions. So it's kind of like, it's it seems to be a bit of an, a, a, uh, on the one hand, we're really trying to uphold these standards that we've had for a long time when it came to state aid. But but now we're also seeing that we're, we're trying to reach this autonomy that you referred to. And mm. <clears throat> it, it, they seem to be juxtaposed a bit, these, uh, these, these two developments. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Okay, so get, uh, get us sort of through more depth of FSR. What I mean by that, um, I think one of the other elements um, that um, in the scope and as a consequence of looking at the FSR that we can look at is things like administrative burden that is, again, quite similar to um, API. Um, they both introduce a certain level of, of administrative burdens. And yeah. I know that you have a couple other elements that you want to touch upon, but let's maybe start with that one. And then I'll give you a space to, to comment also on the other ones. Yeah. So I think administrative burdens, maybe to start off with that, because it's limited in a sense through the, the, the limitation of scope. Right. So mm -hmm. to start with that is it's th this um, regulation is very much linked to the public procurement directives. 
So uh, lots of the terminology is the, sa is the same. Uh, if it concerns a procedure un that falls under the scope of the public procurement directives, it, this also this regulation applies. But then there's different thresholds. So the value of the contract needs to be equal or greater than 250 million, except if it's if it concerns an aggregate of lots, then it's 125. So that's quite a high number, right? We're not talking about your everyday procurements. It's really the big infrastructural projects, the big, big uh, IT procurements. So it's, it's they're, they're substantial uh, contracts. And then the foreign subsidy needs to be equal to or greater than 4 million. So uh, if you reach those thresholds, that's when you get into the space of administrative burdens where, you know, then you need to do something, right? Yeah. Um, and then in a nutshell, because the, the regulation is quite detailed and also uh, just a specific warning, it's quite a hard to read piece of legislation. There's lots right. of red tape, lots of references to existing law, like, you know, an award can take place or must take place on the economically most advantageous tender. Things like that shouldn't have been replicated, I think, and that can be taken out, I think, in the future. But basically, in essence, if you meet those three, two thresholds, there's a prior notification if you meet them, and there's a prior declaration if you don't meet them. So there's, uh, and, and, and they can be related to the last three years. So <clears throat> what does that mean? Is that there's, you know, there's some administrative burden about you as a economic operators submitting a bid, a tenderer, having to declare what your status is on foreign subsidies. And recently, the um, implementing regulation has also come out a few weeks ago. And it basically just means quite a detailed form about how your financial structure is is set up and uh, what can be coined as, as foreign subsidies or not. I think in a way you also can see why companies, if you look at specifically from, you know, like a commercial perspective and if you look at it a bit outside of law and you look at it from perspective, you know, of different people really, I don't know, wanting a bridge to be built and wanting a deal to be made. Like you can see why this is quite problematic because the amount of red tape, even just from this declaration notifications, what you're mentioning right now, you already can see a lot that needs to happen then because then there is a question, okay, what if you something changes to what extent, like all this investigation, that's a lot. And um, I imagine that this will cause also a lot of delays. Yeah, for sure. And also when you just to make the problem, we're not just here to make problems, by the way, but if you could also <laughs> consider that it, it's also, you also have to, the, the main subcontractors and suppliers also need to notify. So yeah. it's not just you as a main contractor, but also if like they perform 20% of the tender or they perform key elements through staff or know-how and knowledge, et cetera, they, um, uh, they also need to notify. And I find that's, um, yeah, that's, it, it's a bit, in a way that makes sense, right? Because like, otherwise you could use holdings that would simply, you know, don't have foreign subsidies, but in fact, the one that does do all the work does have the subsidy. So it's a, it's a bit of a catch-all. Um but that does add to the administrative work that is uh, that is required here. Well, I think that we need to distinguish between two elements here. Um, and that's, I think, for our listeners who might be predominantly, you know, looking at it, okay, this landed, how we operationalize it. We've been given this, we might at some point needing to kind of work with this. And you may mirror our 
discontent in, in the red tape that this introduced. I think that as a counterbalance to that, it's very important to highlight the importance of that, right? Because we're talking about the foreign subsidies in context of, you know, we're winning the largest contract. Some of those contracts may have a really um, significant public interest in various areas of, you know, even just, let's say, you know, electricity, transport, not to mention probably some sort of defense sector elements. Um, um, and, and the potential of having those subsidies and the consequence, what that means is also like foreign, potentially governments um, gaining control or having a substantial impact and not sort of being aware of that on those largest contracts. Um, I might be a bit sort of seeing doomsday, but I kind of feel like this is ultimately a matter of, of, of public interest that we're trying to somehow introduce or control the narrative through regulation like this. Um, so, you know, kind of to give a context of the goal or the perspective rather than solely just the administrative burden along the way? No, and I think we, uh, I, I'm not against this type of regulation. I think it's more about making it effective. I, I very mm. much, I very clearly see the the need for it or the the possibility to make it effective. But you mentioned the word delays, and I think mm. it's that's already an interesting angle, right? And I think most, most of it will depend on capacity of the commission ultimately, because yeah, what happens is... The yeah. commission gets these notifications and declarations. Then there's a preliminary review, which can take 20 days plus 10 days of extension in, in certain circumstances. And then there could be an in-depth investigation of 110 days plus 20 days of extension eh, under certain circumstances. So that means yeah, that you're really now, delaying the procedure a lot. Now imagine, and if if and we obviously assume that people that listen to us are people that work with procurement. So this is not something that we need to really translate. Imagine 110 days delay on public procurement or something of that scale also, right? Because as you mentioned, we're talking about really, really um, high value projects. Um, I, I That was, to be honest, the next thing that I wanted to say, because I think the capacity of commissions here will be um, will be crucial. I quite like that they didn't try to replicate here, you know, what they were trying to do with um, uh, the international public instrument. And full disclosure, I didn't check right now the final version of it, so I'm not 100% sure how it looks right now. But um, the big, um, the big uh, criticism towards that instrument in past have been that you know you kind of created that red tip and you burden it uh, the contracting authorities with it. So I'm at least kind of happy here that commission at least if they introduce that they saying okay we will look into it. But that brings another question about you know this investigation and also the capacity of how that such an investigation is carried out, uh, how it is being done, how effective is it done? Is it like all this loud mess about something that ultimately will not be very realistic to, you know, drive home? Um, and I think that this, this right now will be super important to ensure that this goes fairly smoothly and also that you have people that actually are capable of conducting such an investigation, right? Yeah, and I think... 
also making the link again with with the IPI, ultimately there what they did is an IPI measure gets taken and a contracting authority just needs to follow it up, right? So they just need yeah. to then reject or not. And in a way, this is a far more centralized even. This is where, mm. you know, contracting authorities to a certain extent are taken out of the discussion and uh, the commission needs to be very active here. Now, if, like I said, it won't concern... Uh, probably a lot of tenders but still right it's still important and particularly when these investigations take a long uh, take a long time i think there's a there's a risk there and also why i think perhaps because we went through this discussion in state aid as well right which is first heavily centralized and then mostly the burdens was was placed on the actors themselves because the commission simply couldn't cope with yeah. all these state aid notifications then there was a filter system that, you know, you could check yourself. And then if you thought it was state aid that had to be notified, then you went to the commission. So mm. I also wonder if it's not <clears throat> ultimately um, more interesting to, to, to lower administrative burdens by simply using the European single procurement document for this, right? And make it, making it more of a tick in the box. Um, well, you know, this is where we're going back also to the point of... Um, of kind of a general value of self-declaration, right? And I think that this is probably also a bit depending from um, which sort of market or legal culture um, you come back, how, how much trust in society in general you have to this and how you follow up on this. I'm in general principally not particularly fond of it um, because I think that it can be abused. At the same time, if you look at it, abuse will happen always, but it's not the standardized way. So it's probably maybe also uh, useless to create such a rigid system that makes everyone life miserable due to, you know, two or three people or companies abusing the system. Yeah. Um, so, so it could be that. But what is also interesting here is when it comes to the scope, that it's yet again, you know, a situation in which the um, financial regulation, so the procurement sort of rules for the, European institutions are not covered. And I was yep. just wondering, what do you think? Is it this standard thing of just oversight uh, that this sort of missed someone's attention? Or is there a reason for that? Because we tend to always have this thing of, you know, who is watching the watchdog, right? That the more and more rules that are being implemented are not actually applicable to the European institutions. And I was just wondering when you were looking into that, if at any point, you know, any information across that came uh, came came sort of front and center. Yeah, so <clears throat> I must say, uh, I haven't picked up on anything, but maybe there mm. was something. But it does seem to be a trend where, I don't know if it's so much who's watching the watchdog. It's more like, is the watchdog um, uh, practicing what they preach, ultimately? Mm. Um, and, and I think that could be very, uh, very interesting uh, to, to have a look. Because also when you think about it, like if you don't abide by this foreign subsidies regulation, right? It's not like the consequences are nothing, right? Because you can offer commitments. There can be no further action during a procedure. But if you don't, if you don't comply with the procedure and there's multiple moments where you would need to give openness to of your books as, a, as an economic operator... You, they can fine you 1% of your annual turnover. Or if you don't notify where you should have, it could mm. be 10% of your uh, uh, annual turnover. And that's a lot of money. That's very much that's like a, a competition law fine where, where you yeah. haven't notified a merger. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> in a way, also that when where the, the, the regulation 
in that sense also seems to have quite a lot of teeth and perhaps that's why you would also think maybe those teeth should have also extended to a broader scope perhaps yeah okay um what about legal protection and effectiveness point to sort of wrap up our main because i know that those are still at two points that um that are that, that are of an importance that i'm sure you would like to share with us your viewpoints on them yeah so i think we'll see a lot more um direct action based on this because the commission will then in, in in parts of the procedure the commission can decide no this entity needs to be rejected so that means that there's I think sufficient means to fulfill the criteria of of uh, 263 of the of the of the treaty which means that as an entity you could go directly to the court instead of uh, to the European court instead of having to go through a national procedure but I think one of the aspects that will be very interesting in future days to come is it almost the regulation almost seems to assume that um there's no role for national courts hmm. Whereas I think, <clears throat> it, and, and because of this system, right? Because you're, the commission takes a lot of the work, so it means that you're basically objecting against what the commission has done. Mm-hmm. But the court still will play a role, I think, in, in many cases. Um, what if you as a competitor think that the declaration that's been given by your competitor is false? <clears throat> Where do you go to? Yeah. You'd probably go to a national court. Or if you would say, in fact... This is a main subcontractor. This is not a normal subcontractor. This contractor also needs to notify. So I think those questions will inevitably go through a, a national court. Or similarly, the, the question of there's this really interesting system that's been put in, which I think <clears throat> takes away part of the rigidity of, of procurement procedures where you can uh, repair your... So if you get notified by a contracting authority in the first phase or say you're already at the commission you get 10 days to repair your uh, declaration or your notification mm-hmm. because it, you've it's been said well it's not complete or it's incorrect um, but you know even that could be challenged so i think all those those timelines will also lead to uh, to procedures so i think the the courts will have their work cut out for them also for the, from this um um this fsr and i think Again, it, it's just emphasized again that we don't want to work with or that the EU is not willing to to mandate or oblige the use of national supervisory authorities. It's really the approach here is the commission does most of the work. The national courts have to deal with some aspects and mostly contracting authorities um, uh, are left to just execute certain parts of the procedure. Hmm. I just, um, you know, to piggyback on, on, on what you described, I think that is um, something that comes to my mind is a question, you know, of legal standing. I think that you have a legal standing of somehow interact anyhow with the commission in context of FSR, like quite limited to, you know, ask questions, sort of anyhow engage if you're not directly uh, involved in the in a particular scenario when under the national rules if those are procurement rules or or uh, broader connected with competition law or state aid and so on you're stand you have more standing within or possibility of standing within national courts no yeah that's that it, it, i think that really depends on the national setup of how yeah. when you yeah. gain standing but uh, you're right i think that still leaves a lot of questions and there was one thing that I think is important to mention that we haven't discussed yet. Um, mm. When it comes to this, there's not just, it's not just, so the FSR says it's only related to a specific procedure. So the assumption there is, seems to be that it can't be used in exclusion grounds later on. 
something mm-hmm. like that. So it's specific to a specific procedure, but it's not just the assessment is not just procedure based. It, there could also be what they call ex officio reviews and they can't affect the award of contract. But within a certain time period, the commission can still look at tenders that have already been awarded and then request commitments or at least ask for information. So it's not just um, it's not just that specific procedure, but the, the review options of the commission or the enforcement options are broader than that. So I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned that because I think it's an yeah. important aspect of the uh, of the FSR as well. Oh, for sure. But what is the, the legal? Do you do, do we know what is the legal consequence of of you know review of something that has already been awarded? Yeah. So <clears throat> the FSR explicitly says that. <coughs> apologies. Explicitly says that it can't like break open the contract, mm. but that it, it does seem that certain commitments could be requested, even though, and I think that also leads to a certain amount of um, uh, legal uncertainty in the performance of a contract that might have already oh, been finished. So yeah, but- I, I think most of the impact will be in the procedures themselves, but there's also an ex officio review that I think we need to keep an eye on in, in future days. Well, particularly also that, you know, depending on the consequences, then you might have contractor that wants to modify that contract because that contract is not anymore, uh, you know, sort of commercially valid for them or beneficial, depending what are those commitments that mm-hmm. uh, commission might be seeking. And then we in all the other mess of, you know, how difficult technically it is to uh, modify a contract or also the issue of wanting to withdraw from contract on the contractor side, right? So, yeah, yeah. a bit of a mess at our hands, um, as we say, lawyer's paradise, uh, maybe not necessarily the others um, stakeholders involved in the process. Um, okay, any final thoughts on FSR? Willem, before we move to the dessert? No, let's do dessert. Let's go for it. Okay. So I think that uh, what we attempted to showcase to our listeners with the FSR is a couple words um, on introduction to what it is, and then also giving you a context of introduction of this regulation and uh, what is its re- uh, what its uh, relationship with international procurement instruments? So, thanks so much, Willem, for guiding us through it. And uh, now on to the dessert. And uh, the dessert is a little bit reflecting, predominantly from the perspective of organizers, but also from a perspective of participants, on this phenomenon of events after the pandemic. And namely conferences, seminars, and things of the like, whether we should continue with hybrid or online or go back to fully in person, what are the challenges there? What are the opportunities? What are some of the thoughts surrounding uh, this discussion? So, Willem, what is where you see a challenge of the post pandemic organization of the events? Oh, geez, that sounds it's like a tough exam question, that. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, maybe the reason why I, th- I think it's interesting to discuss is because I'm discussing it a lot with my colleagues and um, mm-hmm. I'm hearing a lot of other people organizing events struggle with this as well. It's where we've all of a sudden we've touched upon a different option, the hybrid version or fully online. And now in a somewhat post pandemic world where most of life has gone back to normal 
um, we're faced with the question, what do we do now? Like, do mm. we go back to what we used to do? Do we keep a balance? Do we, you know? So I, I find that's very difficult. And also from, like you say, from the perspective of a participant, I'm also seeing that people have changed how they work. And they've also changed what they're willing to do to go to an event. And to make it more clear, what I'm finding is if I organize something, um, there's a lot. So, so if there's an online or hybrid option, so you can also participate online, um, there's a lot, there's a higher registration rate than pre-pandemic, but there's also a lower attendance rate comparatively. So maybe that it's ultimately the percentage is the same, but there's a lot more people registering, but there's also a lot more people not going. And I notice it in myself as well, where I think I register for a seminar, something pops up and I think, oh, I'll just either put it on in the background or I'll just do something else. And I find that that makes it also very troublesome uh, when you organize something, when, you know, you think I've got to order catering, I've got to make sure if I have a room that there's enough people there to, to sustain that, or, you know, what type of considerations come into play. So when you think, um, let's go with, because I think that that's kind of interesting. If you look at organization of an online event, right? I would say that largely the online conferences or seminars, they have predefined panels. I would say their role of the participants is quite passive. Yeah. So is it just the sort of thing that, you know, usually when you put a lot of work in something that you hope to have some sort of impact and then when colloquially speaking, you know, like 10 people show up, that that's disappointing. Uh, the reason why I'm, uh, my question is, is it impacting how the event is carried out in itself? Or it's rather about the amount of work versus the impact that the event has? I think you touch upon a very important point, because I mm -hmm. think that the, the, it's probably both. Like, okay. I, I do find that like a lot of online events so uh, just to give you an example the 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 fsr uh event that i organized a couple of weeks ago we did that fully online a panel two or about uh no sorry five speakers two hours in the afternoon we had about 145 registrations i think about 70 ended up showing up mm -hmm. uh, which is fantastic and i think also there's um, an aspect there where i think that was really like a two-hour quick five legal perspectives on a new uh, piece of legislation. It's very much an, an update, first thoughts. But if you then look at the interaction, which was for an online event more than fine, but mm -hmm. there was no debate. It's generally yeah. like one question, an answer, one question, an answer. And I find that if you have a physical event, that debate does spring to life a little bit more or has more potential to do to to get off off the ground and for me another aspect that's important is also um or at least what I'm my gut feeling is starting to do I don't know if it's right yet but I'm finding that I tend to lean to more towards online for English events yeah because then you also have the benefit of you know people don't need to travel which is great for the climate you equalize it for uh, uh for socioeconomic differences of academics or other people attending so your your reach is bigger whereas for events in dutch that i organize i tend to think well i'm not going to offer the online version because otherwise people won't come and that's not entirely true but that's i think the gut feeling that i'm getting yeah, but I think it's, you know, then again, asking yourself a question, why does it matter? And I think that the reason why I'm slightly poking uh, is that 
I think you always uh, need to think what is the intention of the objective of the event. Um, and, you know, and that sort of affects the form, the length, all these different elements. Because I think yeah. the way how you describe the FSC one, FSR, sorry, one, is, you know, like that was super cool in the sense that it was short. So you don't need to invest much time. Now, if you go to somewhere for two hours and you need to travel, you know, not to say across the town, but, you know, from another country or even yeah. region, you will never do that, right? Exactly. So from that perspective, it's brilliant. At the same time, if you really have a panel and presentation that is short and sweet, like we're saying, the participants have quite passive role. And then there is not really a point of really um, kind of... Um, interaction as such now if you would say okay i would really want a participation and a debate and q a's you probably will build into it another at least you would need to another half an hour or an hour for q a's right now the reason why i mentioned that is because um and i think that we've both been and we probably go to some of the same conferences where they were in person and you assumed, okay, great topics, great panelists, you know, yep. super interesting topics. But because of the poor chairing of those conferences and going over time or whatever else, there would be a day of a conference that you barely heard any question being posed exactly. because there was just no time limits. So I think that, it, you know, I wonder whether it is this sort of, post-pandemic element or is it more that we really need to focus on what is the objective of which one and how we um, organize one that i would for sure kick out is hybrid i hate hybrid teaching i hate hybrid events <laughs> i think that it just requires like you know you don't give 100 percent of yourself as an organizer of an event to either yep I and think i find that, that you know <clears throat> The only it's way to do it in only in teaching or in, in these things is, is you have to accept that online is a second class, second rate citizen at an event. And I don't like it. I find that then you yeah. don't get enough time. So it's either, you know, particularly because, you know, you have speakers that are not used to it or you might have people thinking like, oh, yeah, oh, we still have to pay attention to the people that are online. Are you still there? You know, like, and it's yeah. and it's all within good spirit and it doesn't really matter. But I think I, I definitely agree with you where you kind of, where I think, you know, I'd rather have it physical uh, with a side effect that people might actually turn up and be actively engaged if you allow for it, like you rightly say, yeah. um, uh, in, instead of the hybrid. So, yeah. No, you know when I saw also that working the only time, but that requires a humongous amount of work, and then you also need to ask yourself, you know, is it worth it? For what is it worth it, and so on. And that is in a situation if you have like two leads, if those are like co-organizers. So imagine that the two of us organize event. Can you imagine? Then, that yeah, would be awful. But keep going. <laughs> I think that we already did some, just so you know, but okay. Um, and I think we plan for some more. So watch out your words because, you know, that's yeah. right now recorded. Okay. Um, Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, but what I mean is that, you know, let's say that I'm chairing really like in person and making sure that people ask questions and contributing and all that. And you, while at the same time, really like, 
ultimately chair online and you yeah. contribute with your answers and you like as a person that is you know in the room say oh and there is a question online on this and like it needs to really be done in uh, in, in in very committed way to do to 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 make this work and um i think that the problem of that is that the older by experience in academia i get the more I need to say that I, when I was, you know, organizing some of my first conference, I was like, oh, the bigger, the better, this will be impact, it will give exposure to what we're doing, this and that. And I quite right now go other way around. I rather have a small closed workshop in which you really have chance and time to discuss and share opinions and brainstorms but that's also for the development of an argument which i guess is also different when you already yeah. have a paper or work and you just want to present it right yeah so yeah i i agree and it's also i find um maybe it's um it, it's i think i can speak on behalf of both of us or a lot of academics when we organize events it's nice to have a lot of people there right because it shows that For there's sure. interest what you're doing is relevant but i think what's what's uh, the question that you rightly raise i think is often the events that i enjoy the most are the ones where it's more of an expert expert round table where you have 10 people there because then everyone feels like they have an, a responsibility to uh, to to contribute yeah. um so i i think we'll need to um, we'll need to round up for sure. uh, but, but maybe we can uh, leave it also with a question with our listeners, what, what their opinion is. Do you agree that hybrid is not the way to go in the future and that you really need to be specific about how you go about and what the objective is of a certain event as to how you think about moving online or, uh, or on site and what are considerations to take into account uh, for you? We'd love to hear about it. For sure. If you have some good practices or opinions or experiences when something worked well and you would like to share with us, having in mind that in our line of work, we will be for sure organizing more events and we're always up there to uh, learn and improve and, and do things better. We will be super grateful if you share uh, some of your thoughts with us. So to wrap up, um, today we talk um, FSR and the relationship with procurement, how it will impact the largest of procurements in years to come. And we also thought about uh, the notion of post-pandemic events and how you need to be intentional about what is the objective of the event that you're organizing, what you're trying to get out of it, but also having in mind uh, what are potential um, challenges and brainstorm a little bit um, how to overcome them. Uh, and I think that that has been all for today. We're looking forward to hearing from you, dear listeners. This was The Stack, the public procurement podcast. This was The Stack, the public procurement podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestackpodcast.com. Thank you.